The persecution of Christians is not a thing of the past. Around the world, millions of Christians live in fear for their lives. And perhaps nowhere is that fear so great as in the Middle East, especially in the territory dominated by a militant group of Islamic extremists known as ISIS. Join us today as we learn more about ISIS and how Christians in the West are called to respond to this emerging threat with our special guest, Robert Spencer, director of Jihad Watch. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. I'm joined in our studios with our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology here at uh, Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, who holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology in the New Evangelization again here at Franciscan University. And returning to the show is uh, Robert Spencer, the director of Jihad Watch, which is a, a program from the David Horowitz uh, Freedom Center. You're the author of 14 books, uh, two of them New York Times bestsellers, The Truth About Mohammed and The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam, uh, both from uh, Regnery. Uh, your latest book is The Complete Infidel's Guide to ISIS. Uh, Spencer, you have spent a number of times uh, giving seminars on Islam and Jihad for the military, for the FBI, for the U.S. intelligence community. You hold a master's in religious studies from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Welcome back to the program. Great to be back. Thank you. Well, the headlines today, uh, it almost rarely can we not find something about ISIS. Uh, so maybe, we, it, it, since it's very much in the forefront um, for a lot of people and in the news today, uh, what or who is ISIS? Is it a militant group? Is it a political group? What really is ISIS? Well, ISIS is, in the first place, what it, it considers itself to be the new caliphate. Okay. Uh, the caliphate in Sunni Islamic theology, and Sunnis are 85 to 90 percent of Muslims worldwide, is the only legitimate government to which all Muslims in the world owe allegiance. And hmm. ISIS, or the Islamic State as it calls itself, is uh, making a claim to be the caliphate that is so compelling to Muslims worldwide that 30,000 Muslims have now gone to Iraq and Syria and joined it. And it controls in Iraq and Syria a territory larger than Great Britain and holds sway over up, or upwards of 8 million people. Now, when was the last time there was a caliphate? 1924. And that's when it was disbanded, as it were. Yes, that's right. The uh, secular Turkish government under Kemal Ataturk abolished the caliphate because he uh, was very much against, that is Ataturk, was against political Islam. And he wanted to destroy it. And right. so he uh, abolished the caliphate, which was as momentous an occasion as if someone were to go into the Vatican and depose the Pope and say there will be no more Popes. That's right. He's a layperson wow. now. Yeah. Yes. yeah. I mean, that sort of thing, I believe, is uh, momentous. But how long was the caliphate there? From the beginning of Islam. That's right. Uh, the uh, wow. Prophet Muhammad, the Prophet of Islam, died in the year 632 and according to Islamic tradition. And there were, after that, what are called the uh, Khalifa Rashidun, the four rightly guided caliphs, right. the four immediate successors of Muhammad, Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and Ali. 
And then after that, there came the Umayyad dynasty of the uh, Caliphate, and then the Abbasids, followed by the Ottomans, all the way through history up until 1924. So a Caliphate is not just a political thing, it is a religious aspiration. Yes, absolutely, because yeah. the caliph in Islamic theology is the successor of Muhammad as the military, political, and spiritual leader of the Muslims. Mm. And the abolition of the caliphate was for Muslims worldwide deeply traumatic because the caliph, even though at the end of the Ottoman Empire he was essentially a figurehead, was still the symbol of the supranational unity of the Muslims right. and of the power of the Muslims insofar as the caliph is the only one authorized in Sunni theology to wage offensive jihad. And so the jihad groups after that, starting with the Muslim Brotherhood that was founded in 1928, that was founded expressly to restore the caliphate. And the jihad groups that come from the Brotherhood, like Al-Qaeda and Hamas and the others, they've always had as an aspiration to restore the caliphate. Now the Islamic State claims to have done it. Well, yeah, this is really uh, scary stuff. Uh, yes. it, it would appear that they don't recognize national boundaries. They're exactly. not uh, confined by the nation state or frontiers of geography. Their pretensions would appear to be global, planetary, uh, uh, in fact. Oh, absolutely. They're the only legitimate government for Muslims yes. on Earth. And so this is why Muslims from all over the world have gone to join them, because they believe this, and they believe right. that the allegiance to the caliphate transcends all national or ethnic or any other allegiances. It's also why there's a deafening silence when it comes to Muslims who don't go to join them, but who won't condemn them. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Or if they condemn them, they don't do anything about it. Right. I mean, there's a lot of complications with those condemnations. Right. For example, all the major Muslim groups in the United States, all of them without exception, are tied to the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood, yeah. as I said just a minute ago, has wanted to establish a caliphate okay. since 1928. Right. They have never succeeded in doing so. Yeah. And now this group that comes from Al-Qaeda in Iraq has stolen their thunder and established the caliphate. Right. They see it as competition. That's right. And so they condemn the Islamic State, but at the same time they don't reject its theology. Right. And they, uh, there is no mm. program in American mosques to teach against its understanding of Islam. Hmm. Well, we're really in a de facto state of war with, oh, with militant Islam. It's on the march. I don't remember the last time you were on the show, but a lot of catastrophic uh, stuff has happened since then, uh, as if having you made things worse. <laughs> You're the harbinger of bad cause. news. Yes. Yeah. They, what, what, why, why don't we take this threat more seriously? Well, it's, uh, it's an official policy of the U.S. government not to take it seriously. Yeah, then I mean, you want to call it Barack Obama. Yeah, experience. absolutely. I mean, why, why are we even talking about it as ISIS? ISIS is the Islamic State of Iraq and Shams. Shams is the Levant. And so you get from there the acronyms ISIL or ISIS, ISIS. But they dropped the second half of the name on June 29, 2014, when they declared the caliphate. And now they're just the Islamic State. But Barack Obama won't call them that. Right. None of the Western yeah. leaders will call them that because they don't want to acknowledge that it's Islamic. And they have indeed, as you say, declared war on the United States quite explicitly. But mm -hmm. because of the ideological problem in that the, the Western leaders, including Obama, but not limited to him, they don't want to acknowledge that this is an Islamic group. And that, since I think that would lead to a massive reevaluation of their policies toward right. Muslims, both domestic and foreign, that they, they are committed to downplaying and denigrating the magnitude of this threat. So there hasn't been a, a caliphate since the, the 20s. Yes. Um, and the Muslim Brotherhood, which was formed shortly thereafter, one of their objectives was to create a new caliphate. Yes. ISIS is now claiming that mantle, whether or not every, every Muslim agrees with uh, ISIS or the Islamic State. 
what are the objectives? And is it purely, you kind of already said this, Scott, but is it, is it purely a military? Is it purely political? Is it, is it purely religious in its objectives? And what are they? It's military, political, and religious. <laughs> and right. these things are inextricably bound in Islam. Because, for example, you ask about their goals. One of their primary goals now is to conquer Rome. And why do they want to conquer Rome? Because there is a prophecy attributed to Muhammad the prophet where he says, first you will conquer the new Rome, Constantinople, and then you will conquer the old Rome. And of course they conquered Constantinople in 1453. Wow. Now it is roughly the same period between the time of Muhammad to the conquest of Constantinople and now the time of the conquest of Constantinople to now. And so you have many Muslim clerics, not limited to the Islamic State, saying we're now at the second half of that prophecy and it's yeah. time to conquer the old Rome. And so the Islamic State has a whole entire program, a very detailed plan for how they intend to go about doing that within the next five years. That's very chilling uh, to hear that. Yes. And, it, and it's for, for Catholics, for those listening, I mean, to realize that that is a direct stated intent of this group. That's yes. You know, I, I think what we also have to acknowledge is that there is a kind of collective trauma that has descended upon us whereby the absolutely unthinkable has become the absolutely unavoidable. Yes. And you know, when, it, when that sort of thing happens privately or individually to a person, you know, uh, my spouse just told me last night she's getting a divorce, you know, or my child just told me he renounced the faith and he is marrying his gay lover, you know, those kinds of things, you Which know. Which is not true in your case no, at all. No, no, no. <laughs> but I mean, when I've talked to people who've had those sort of traumatizing experiences, you're in a state of denial, you're in a state of grief, you're in a state of anger, you're, you're, but that denial sort of thing grips you. And I would say, if that's true privately and personally, it can also be true publicly yes. and collectively. Right. Because it's sort of like, if we acknowledge the magnitude of this threat, we recognize our own, our, our own incapacity, our own unpreparedness, and our own vulnerability. Yes. And it's like, we can't go there because, well, I mean, that would be the undoing of my There's world. The There's, it is the undoing of the Western secular intellectual's world. It is. Because the Western secular intellectual has gotten used to thinking over the last century or more that uh, war can be talked away, that it can be outlawed, as it was right before World War II, and it can be uh, any dispute between people can be negotiated away. And people like John mm. Kerry, that's their bedrock assumption. And they think there is nothing that can be overcome that needs to go to violence. Right. And now this, is, this, this worldview is exploding in their face and they can't deal with it. And, and even before it was an illusion, but now it's yes. a dangerous delusion. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if we go back to the origins of ISIS, uh, how did it begin and, and did the U.S. have any role, if you will, in contributing to its, its spread? Because that's often sometimes heard around. Uh, oh, absolutely, and justifiably. Uh, ISIS is the old Al-Qaeda in Iraq group. And you may recall about 10 years ago, Al-Qaeda in Iraq was in the headlines quite a bit when uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the leader of it, was uh, brutalizing the, uh, the Americans that he captured. And you remember the incident in Fallujah where some of them were burnt alive and then the corpses hung up and so on. That was all Zarqawi and Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, Zarqawi was killed in an American airstrike in 2006, but Al-Qaeda in Iraq continued. Now what's interesting is that even before he was killed, he was in talks with Zawahiri, the number two man in right. Al-Qaeda at that time, and now the head man, and Osama bin Laden, about establishing a caliphate in Iraq. 
And they all agreed, yes, we need to establish a caliphate in Iraq. And I believe that they were thinking it needs to be in Iraq because Baghdad is an ancient site of the caliphate and Islamic civilization. And so they all agreed on that, but they disagreed on how and when it should be done. And Zarqawi very strongly thought that it should be done as soon as possible. But Osama bin Laden thought that if they did it too precipitously that the Americans would come in and topple it. And there was a split between the two camps, okay. such that finally Al-Qaeda disavowed with the group that became the Islamic State altogether. Okay. And they, the group that became the Islamic State went ahead and established its caliphate. The Americans did not topple it. And since now it, is, it has uh, persevered for oh, well over a year, and there does not seem to be any force in place that has the will to, to take it out or the means okay. to take it out. Um, those who have the will don't have the means, and those who have no. the means don't have the will. Th thus, right. it's yeah. still there, and that is a sign, you see, mm. that Allah has blessed it and has, is certifying it as the real caliphate. And so the longer it remains, the more Muslims join it. You know, it is sort of ironic that uh, early on Osama bin Laden would, would represent a council of restraint yes. and prudence. He had a healthy sense of fear. Yes. How do we induce that again so that it, it begins to determine the actions of the enemy so that they take heed uh, and maybe try something, something else, less bellicose? We have to show strength. This is a culture this is a religion that understands strength and weakness and power and weakness. It does not understand anything else. In Islam, there is no idea of the wicked prospering that no. is so, the, so frequent lament from the Psalms. It's not there in Islam. In Islam, if you obey Allah, you will prosper. And if yeah. you don't, you will, you will lose. Yeah. And so if they lose, then they will reflect enough to think we are not uh, pleasing Allah and we have to back off on this at this point, as they did in the colonial period to a tremendous yep, degree. Yep. But that was only in response to a strong show, not only of military strength, but of societal and cultural right, strength right. from the yeah. British. You may recall the story of the British commander in India. Now, he was speaking with Hindus, but the analogy is exact. He said that the, the Hindus came, he, he outlawed sati, the practice of women being thrown on the funeral pyres of their husbands. and. The uh, Hindu leaders came to him and they said, you don't understand, this is our culture. Yeah. And he said, uh, uh, very well, you practice your culture and we also have a culture. And so we, in our culture, we take men who burn women to death and hang them by the neck until dead. So you practice your culture right. and we'll right. practice ours. Right. <laughs> and Sati stopped. Uh. Yeah. Now, if we had that same sort of cultural confidence in the face of Islam, then I think a lot of this would be rolled back. But we yeah. don't. We installed Sharia constitutions in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, one, one thinks of the example of that Afghan chieftain who, who told the, the military, you know, we, we typically rape young boys, uh, and we should do so with impunity. It's a function of our culture. But that one courageous uh, uh, colonel stepped in and said, no, you can't do that. Yet he was punished yes. by the U.S. military. The U.S. military's policy is to let that happen and turn right. a blind eye. Let them be. And so that is exactly the uh, opposite of what we should be doing. Right. And I do believe that if we had gone into yeah. Afghanistan and Iraq 10 years ago, 12 years ago, and said, women who were brutalized by their husbands, you can have refuge here. Non-Muslims who are in fear of their lives for leaving Islam or not being Muslim, you can have refuge with us. If we had, in other words, stood for our own principles, right. then we would have had many, many people coming to us. I know there's a lot to talk about, but I would say this. This is why it's not enough just to say, well, we need strong Republican leadership as opposed to weak Democrats. We need a tremendous revival of Christianity yes. 
and especially for us as Catholics to long for not just the private but the social expression of it as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there, there's so much more to talk about. Stay with us for the next segment of Franciscan University Presents. I strongly agree with those who argue that radical Islam is a serious threat. It is an imminent threat, it's a significant threat. But there are also really good reasons for Christendom to collaborate with the leaders of the moderate Muslim world. The first of these is that in the world today, there are more than 1.5 billion Muslims. That's nearly one quarter of the world's population. So we may succeed as the West in fighting radical Islam, of eliminating organizations like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, but we can't do it alone in terms of preventing future generations of Muslims for believing in, for supporting these movements. The second reason is Christendom faces a simultaneous threat from cultural relativism, and we believe in an absolute truth. Muslims actually share that similar belief in an absolute truth that comes from God. And while we disagree over some of the tenets of the truth, it's important to have allies in that cultural struggle. People recognize Franciscan University as being academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We have the unique opportunity through our faculty members, through our students, to proclaim that academic excellence by reaching out in many different ways. We also remain passionately Catholic in the way in which we are able to worship, the way in which we are able to bring that love of Christ to others on a daily basis. It's important for us to be able to embrace both. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking to Robert Spencer, author and scholar uh, of Jihad Watch, director of Jihad Watch. So we've talked about kind of the beginnings of ISIS and the Islamic State. Um, but is, is ISIS um, an aberration? Uh, or how does it fit in the context of, of Islam as a whole? Well, there are many, many Islamic scholars who will tell you ISIS is an aberration, that it has nothing to do with authentic Islam. Okay. The glaring failure of every one of those analyses that I have come across, and I look for them all the time, is that they fail to address the theological foundations in Islam on which ISIS bases its own actions. And very, ISIS very scrupulously bases everything it does on the Quran and the example of Muhammad. Uh, they, the beheadings, it, when they meet the unbelievers, strike their necks, which is the Quran chapter 47, verse 4. The uh, sex slavery is based on the Quran's passages, uh, the captives of the right hand, which is four different places in the Quran where it makes it very clear that you can take infidel women and use them as sex slaves in addition to your four wives. It sounds unbelievable, but it's it in there. Yeah. And then it's sanctioned by Muhammad's example, and Muhammad is the perfect model for conduct for Muslims according to the Quran. So if Muhammad did it, it's right and to be emulated. And he took sex slaves on the battlefield, so how could it be wrong? And so everything that the Islamic State does is deeply Islamic, and this is one of the reasons for their appeal among young Muslims worldwide, buttressing their claim to be the caliphate. So, so you would argue and, and point out very clearly just all the roots that they draw from. So they're making the claim, it, it, you don't have to make it, they're making that claim almost uh, well, for Well, that is you, a key right? distinction, and it's an interesting one because it's elided a lot. Mm. Uh, in other words, I report on, in my book and elsewhere, that on how ISIS uses Islamic texts and teachings to justify its actions and make recruits. But then I am accused of 
attributing to ISIS Islamic authenticity that it does not own. Uh, it does not actually possess. And this is a funny thing, but it's a very common thing. If you look at the writings of the Organization of, the Is of Islamic Cooperation, yeah. which is 57 Muslim governments around the world, they're working energetically to try to compel the West to criminalize criticism of Islam. Right. And they say, we have to uh, criminalize these people who, th th these writings that link Islam with terrorism. Mm. And they say that that's what I'm doing and people like me are doing, when actually the people linking Islam with terrorism are people right. like ISIS. Right, right. right. But right. I, oh, the OIC is trying to criminalize the reporting of that. In other words, make us mute and defenseless in the face of it. They, they don't say anything when ISIS connects Islam with terrorism. They only say it when I report on how ISIS links Islam with terrorism. And so you see the strategy there. Yeah, they right. want to silence all criticism of this in the West so that it can advance without opposition. Yeah. Well, see, it, it's really strange. The enemy is making the case for you. All, you, all you've done is, is sort of connect uh, these dots. Yes. But what, what uh, mystifies me is why we in the West, particularly the Lord's spiritual, the leaders, uh, are, are so completely in, in, insensible uh, to this, this nexus, which you and the enemy have so carefully drawn. This is what they're about. Why, why do we retreat from reality? Why this hesitancy to call a spade a spade? Well, wasn't it T.S. Eliot who said humankind cannot bear right, very, very much, much reality? Yeah. And so uh, well, I know, think that's the situation that we're in. Especially then when that reality has to do with ultimate matters and yes. eternity and divinity. And, you know, this sort of thing, you know, a lot of people who are Christian would say, you know, that Jesus, my personal relationship with him, that's really what it's all about. It's not sacraments, it's not liturgy, it's not diocese, it's not the papacy, it's not, you know, and there are a lot of Muslims who would say the same thing at this point, yeah. you know, about Islam and about the Islamic State. And I think we can draw those analogies in a helpful way, and at the same time, I think we can also recognize the fact that we have created a vacuum for centuries where religion has been privatized, right. where religion does not really have a voice in the public square. And if religious people want to find a way, find a voice, they're going to have to kind of become bilingual, and that is speak secular political values, that sort right. of thing. Right. And so for us to have to kind of adjust to the shock that religion is back, divinity, eternity, you know, and it's back in a way that is not going away at yes. any time soon, you know, we could just simply say, well, it was nice while it lasted, you know. But I think we also have to reassess the fact that our faith, no less than Islam, is dynamically ordered to a public expression, not violence. Mm -hmm. You know, when we are violent, we're sort of contradicting Jesus. When they're violent, they're sort of imitating Muhammad. Oh yeah. You know, and I think we have to recognize those sort of binary ideas right. in order to make an adjustment. And at the same time, acknowledge when we conduct just war, it isn't just the lesser of two evils, it's just, it's righteous. It's not just lawful. And so, you know, in the medieval period, you know, the statement of Aquinas that Islam leaves Christians in a state of perpetual warfare yes. has to be acknowledged. Right? Yeah, yeah. And when you talk yeah. about Christian leaders and why they uh, have so much trouble acknowledging this, I think here again we have this commitment to decades old and entrenched 
unrealities and right. the yeah. idea that dialogue is going to solve everything. Right, yeah. And right. yet it, dialogue hasn't saved a single Christian from persecution right. by Muslims, right. hasn't yeah. saved a single church from being burnt. All it has done is make Christian leaders in the West feel good about uh, progress they're making with Muslims. But that progress is illusory and deceptive. Right. Yeah. It hasn't compelled any Muslim leaders to yeah. institute any realistic plan to save the Christian minorities in Muslim countries. Yeah. I, I think of that quip, maybe it comes from Lenin or Stalin, that when the communist hangs the last capitalist, the capitalist will have sold him the yes. rope. Yeah. It is a kind of death wish. Yes, Yeah. absolutely. It's, so we've got the, the, the Christians and, and just Americans and people of the West who have created a, a separation of faith in their life in general. And so they kind of make that assumption of Muslims, that they are making that same break, which yeah. isn't necessarily. And there are some. There are, yeah. Right. But see, the thing is, people have a tremendous difficulty for some reason. And I think actually this is partly because of Islamic propaganda efforts in the West. Right. They cannot distinguish between Muslims and Islam. That's right. And yet, you know, we have, for example, in the Catholic Church, many people who uh, don't pay any attention to the teachings of the church, and they right. call themselves Catholics. Right. And so why should it be so hard for us to grasp that there may be Muslims who are perfectly nice people who don't have any intention of waging jihad at any time, That's right. but that does not mean that Islam does not teach jihad and the subjugation of unbelievers. Well, going from that, so, so we know that there are Muslims who oppose ISIS. There are <laughs> some who have been very public about that. Um, on what basis do they typically oppose uh, that kind of extremist Muslim Islamic uh, This is where I've found it to be very squishy. Okay. As I said, that I, I have not come across any yeah. condemnation of ISIS that actually deals with what ISIS bases its claims upon. So, so, so it's, it's, they not, condemn it's, the violence it's not a actions. principled opposition, it's more of a yeah. prudential disagreement. And yet it seems to be a principled opposition, right. and this it is why it's so insidious. There, yeah. were, there were 200 Muslim scholars, some of the most prominent Muslim scholars in the world, and some of the most prominent clerics, who issued a letter to al-Baghdadi, the caliph, the self-styled caliph, right. and they went through, it was very lengthy, and they went through theological proposition after theological proposition, and showed ostensibly that they, that ISIS was completely un-Islamic. Now, this was tremendously received in the Western press, sure. yeah, and sure. enthusiastically celebrated, but I went through it, did a very, very close analysis, line by line, and showed that actually in the course of denouncing ISIS, these scholars have endorsed jihad against unbelievers, the subjugation of unbelievers as inferiors under Islamic law, the idea of the caliphate as the sole legitimate government, and many, many other principles on which ISIS is based. They just don't like how ISIS is doing it. Right. And really the, the, so the bottom in, line is that they were Muslim Brotherhood clerics, once again, in competition. So they concede the principle. They're just a little fastidious about the application. Yes. They, yes. Or they uh, wanted to have their own guy right, be the caliph right, and not yeah. this upstart right. in yeah, But it's, it's Sharia, it's jihad, yes. it is dimitude, it is the caliphate. I mean, it's just not your form. Yes, but they endorsed all those things yeah. and more. Yeah. You, you may remember uh, when Ben Carson said, look, I don't want a Muslim as president. That was a perfectly, uh, perfectly reasonable uh, position to stake out, and yet he caught <laughs> all kinds of flack mm. for yes. that, for being intolerant. Yeah. yeah, it's a dogma of the American media yeah. that Sharia Islamic law is perfectly benign and perfectly compatible with U.S. constitutional principles <laughs> and that anybody who thinks otherwise is a racist, bigoted yeah. Islamophobe. Right. When actually right. Sharia denies the freedom of speech, the freedom of conscience, the equality of rights of women, the equality of rights of non-Muslims. Right. Yeah. And so it's completely incompatible with yeah. the Constitution. Yeah. Carson was completely right. right. Yeah. 
Uh, okay, so we, we know that there are... Do you are have so any other objection? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is such a serious topic, but it, but it is almost crazy that people don't see what is plainly in front of them. I do often think of the passage in, the, uh, in Paul's letters, where is it? Where he says people in the end times will, will be under strong yeah, delusion. delusion, they'll believe That's delusions. Right, I'm not saying we're necessarily in the end times, I would not know, but I certainly believe we are in an age where delusions are held up as unchallengeable dogma, and if you dare question them, then you are out of polite society, and the yeah. idea that Islam is a religion of peace is one of the foremost. Yeah. Right. We, yeah. we often have, and we've had uh, in some shows in the past where people, uh, media and the culture will throw back to, oh, well, the, the Christians have had religious wars. Oh, well, you know, there, there are religious fanatics uh, as well in the Christian world and so forth. What's your response when you hear that out there? It, the contrast seems so stark to me. But well, the contrast is stark. There were wars that Christians fought, and there were wars that Christians fought in the name of Christ and Christianity. I mean, most notably, of course, the Crusades. What nobody mentions is that the Crusades were a late and small-scale reaction to 450 yeah. years of jihad conquests that had overwhelmed what had been up to that point over half of the Christian world. Right. And that the Crusades were never based even by their most strong supporters and even by the clerics who justified them like St. Bernard and others. Mm. They never looked, pointed to Christian scripture and said, see, we have to fight right. the unbelievers. Right. You know, right. They were talking about political political matters. There's a shift. The, is the Islamic scripture mandating right. warfare against right. unbelievers? Excuse me. Th there is a shift here and, and when it comes to Crusades historiography. I mean, Runciman's revisionist mythology, which made it all in demonizing the Christians and romanticizing or idealizing the Muslims, you know, has been replaced at least gradually by Jonathan Riley Smith and Thomas Madden yes. and others so that we recognize these are wars of defense. These are just wars. These were wars that were sanctioned by canonized saints and so on. Yes. Uh, and so I think we have to, we have to take stock in the fact that we are paying dearly for centuries of apostasy yes. that we ourselves in dramatic right, denial right. of. Yeah. And that we've become, we've been taught to be ashamed of our own history. That's right. Yeah. And you know, right. I, I wrote a book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam and the Crusades, in which the second half of the book is ex making exactly that case from Madden and others yeah. that uh, the Crusades are nothing to be ashamed of. Right. They were, they, there, were, there were excesses, there were sins among the Crusaders, yeah. Yeah. but that they were dealing with a jihad threat that was much greater and caused much more human suffering and is mm. much and is deeply rooted in Islamic. I, I think mm. the distinction is this. Uh, when, when Christians commit excesses, you can appeal to the ideals of Christianity to try and disabuse them of, right. of those aberrations. I mean, Chesterton had the sense of it when he said, look, uh, a guy who's drunk and he's beating the hell out of somebody in a bar, you can appeal to his sense of manhood. Don't do that. That's not what men do. But if you're in the grip of a crocodile, you can't very well appeal to this guy and say, look, be a crocodile and let me go. Islam <laughs> is the crocodile, Absolutely. and they're not going to let us go. Yes, wow. the, the Quran says in three separate places, kill them wherever you find them. Yeah. And uh, has specific that's instructions. That's pretty plain spoken. It's just the religion Christian. of peace, though. I mean, you know, that's, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that's what, I mean, seriously, I, I, you know, they, they talk about that. Well, often. it's it's a word play, though. It's it's peace through submission. Yes, right? you know, yes. they have a different. Sense when I've of talked peace to Catholics in Nigeria who describe what it was like to grow up in Islamic majorities, I mean, uh, there it's much more public and explicit. That is, we're born to rule. We are superior. Mm. You yes. are inferior. You will convert or you will be dimmed. You know, yes, be the Quran says the Muslims are the best of people on earth. Yeah. Mm. Chapter 3, verse 110. And the unbelievers are the most vile of created beings. Chapter 98, verse 6. 
lower than animals, chapter 855. And so you, you have the best of people and the most vile of created beings. And this distinction runs throughout Islam so that you have in another Quran passage, 48 verse 29, it says, Muhammad is the apostle of Allah. Those who follow him are merciful to one another and ruthless to the unbelievers. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Uh. So when they called the Jews pigs, yes. they're not, this is not hyperbole. That's they, in the Quran. They really well. mean it. It's yeah. in the Quran three times yeah. that uh, Allah cursed the Jews and transformed them into apes and pigs. Yeah. Uh. Stay with us for the next segment of Franciscan University Presents. Most countries do have an official policy of not negotiating with terrorists, and I support that because you don't want to encourage the terrorist organization by incentivizing their terror. At the same time, sometimes you do reach a point in the evolution of a terrorist organization where you do need to dialogue with them to understand what, in, what they're asking for is plausible. So in the case of the IRA in Northern Ireland or the ETA in Spain or the PLO, uh, initially, they were using the violence or the threat of violence to achieve fear, but they found that they weren't achieving their end goal of political change. So when you realize that they understood they're not going to gain what they want, that's the point where sometimes it's fruitful to open a dialogue. I am a communication arts major, the president of Film Club, and an editor for Franciscan University Presents. It's really great to be able to work on Franciscan University Presents because it is a national television show on EWTN, and in a lot of other schools you're not going to have that kind of ability to put that on a resume. When I graduate, I know that I'm going to, to be firm in sticking with my faith and you know going to daily mass and a frequent confession and things like that, because instead of just learning with my mind or just focusing on schoolwork, I, I actually you know, can grow with my whole person. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. This entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Our program is being recorded right now in the Communication Arts Studios here in Steubenville, Ohio. Our, our students are operating the camera and equipment. Our panelists, our faculty here at Franciscan University. We've been talking with Robert Spencer, director of Jihad Watch, author and scholar. Um, so we've been talking about ISIS and, and Islam, particularly in the Middle East. Uh, let's, let's bring it home for a second. Is there any concern that we should have in the West, but particularly here in America, about the growth of Islam here? Very much so. Uh, the Islamic State has a number of publications that are kind of hair-raising to read, and one of them is Black Flags Over Rome. That's the title. And uh, it details the plans for its conquest of Rome, but also of the United States. And it uh, is obviously not going to, not envisioning conquering the United States by means of conventional warfare, but by means of subversion and infiltration. In February 2015, the Islamic State threatened to send 500,000 refugees into Europe and have its jihadis among them. Now, of course, we see this massive refugee influx into Europe. The Lebanese education minister quite recently said that of the uh, refugees in his country from Syria, he estimates that 20,000 are active jihadis, and they're on their way to Europe. Of course, Barack Obama has already announced that he's going to bring at least 200,000 here from Syria, and there's no way to distinguish whether they are jihadis or not, especially since the Islamic State Manual, Black Flags from Rome, and others. It very clearly de de details how the Muslims, the operatives of the Islamic State, should blend in. 
yeah. with the wider population. They should not appear to be overtly Muslim. Not, don't wear a beard, it says. Don't wear a kaftan. Don't carry around a Quran. Don't even go to mosque. But be secular, go to bars, have a drink, and when we need you, we'll call you. Do we, do we know of any instances, and uh, you, you follow this much more, or are they still kind of out there uh, uh, fomenting uh, in our culture, or have there been instances where they've been instances where they've stepped forward and been a, a There have been issue. many instances where there are probably about 250 or maybe more Muslims from the United States who have gone to join the Islamic State. Mm. Mm. And there are others who are trying all the time. Uh, there was recently a couple from Mississippi, a young married couple. They were arrested at the airport on their way to try to join the Islamic State. And what's interesting about them is that the, uh, the young man is the son of a longtime imam in a mosque there in Starkville, Mississippi. And so you've got to wonder, what are they teaching in that mosque that the son wants to go join the Islamic State? And who else are they reaching? There have been also jihad plots around the country uh, fomented by people who have sworn allegiance to the Islamic State. And so this is already happening now. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I have read several of your books, and I want you to keep writing as okay. long as you're still living. <laughs> I also want to commend the work of the Jihad Watch. You know, I, I didn't you. get Facebook until my first of the now dozen grandchildren were born and all the p pictures were posted, so I reluctantly joined. But I do get that feed from you with all the stories. I get very few feeds apart from my grandkids and my family members. But that sort of, you know, that, that steady diet is sometimes just too much because you realize the facts, the stories, the episodes, the witness testimony, you know, of the people who have, you know, watched their children burned by neighbors who they were friends with. Once the Islamic State came in, these Assyrian Christians were suddenly ravaged by their own neighbors that they had been friends with. Yeah. The story was, you know, uh, they had actually performed medical operations for their families, you know. That sort of thing just, re you know, it makes you recognize that this is not just geopolitical, that this is, this is heaven and hell. This is, yes. this is light and dark. And it didn't end, you know, back in the first century. It's going on in the 21st century. And the diabolical and the demonic are still with us. And they have social and military expressions. This is very important. Look, it's, it's not very well known. The, the, the United States and Western Europe are now basing their futures of their nations on the idea of moderate Muslims and the idea that there, there are Muslims who will assimilate and adopt Western values. And there will be. And there will Many. be. But That's there right. is also this Let's wild card. It. You mentioned this Syrian Christian family and their children were killed by their Muslim neighbors. This is not an aberration. This is something that we see throughout the history of Islam. In my very first book, a million years ago, I put in a story from the decline of the Ottoman Empire. When the Ottoman Empire, the last caliphate, was collapsing, there was a story of a Muslim man who came home from the mosque one night, and he said to his wife, we have to kill the neighbors. The neighbors were Christians. And she said, what are you talking yeah. about? Our, our neighbors are good to us, and we've been neighbors with them for 30 years. And he said, I have to. The imam said, I have to. And he went over and killed them. And this is not to say, obviously, Scott, that every moderate Muslim is a time bomb waiting right. to go off. Maybe but most, all of them aren't. Absolutely, right. but it cannot be discounted. There are many, many right. stories many. when Syria started to be engulfed in the Civil War of Muslim neighbors turning on their Christian friends and <coughs> killing them. As well as modern Muslims. Yes, exactly. Muslim who had, Muslims who had been friends and neighbors with the Christian families, and they go and kill them. 
And here again, I'm not saying this is going. This is a universal principle, but it's foolish, I think, uh, to disregard the possibility of it as a society, and that's where we are. You know, people watching this program must be struck by the science fiction quality of what mm -hmm. we're saying, yeah. an aura yes. of the unreal, the fantastical, as if we're surrounded by these pod people, uh, and sooner or later they're going to show themselves. And that's exactly the scenario as it as it. That's unfolds. what the Islamic State. What are we going to do about that's it? That's what the Islamic State has said. Right. Go to America we, and act like a normal American, and then we will call upon you at a certain point. Yeah. Why should we ignore that as a possibility? Right. And and many are even here converting. You talked about those going yes. over to fight. What, what makes Westerners uh, particularly vulnerable to the the attract or what attracts Westerners to Islam? The weakness of the church. Hmm. Yeah. Go go deeper. What do you? The, the, look, I'm not saying that uh, this is true of all churches, but there are all too many churches, and I mean not just Catholic churches, but Protestant churches and Orthodox churches as well, where you don't find the, the, the truth of the gospel. You find essentially uh, preaching of social work and the soft Democratic Party platform and vague uh, notions of love one another and compassion and peace and no, no, no strong stand for anything. Hmm. And the young people, I think especially, they, they, they want to be part of something great. And the call to be part of something great, I think, is very appealing to young people in the West who are rootless and aimless and have no morality right. and nobody's calling them to account, nobody's holding them to any standards, including the church. Yeah. And they see this as something where finally they're part of something that matters and finally they have some discipline in their lives. Um, I, I would yeah. hesitate to say the church. I would say people who are, have leadership positions in That's the church. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I know exactly yeah. what you mean. You know, I remember going back when I was first entering the church and reading the writings of St. Patrick, who described his own astonishment that when he was proclaiming the gospel, people were, were consecrating themselves to celibacy, you know, committing themselves to kind of monastic discipline, young people especially, and he was startled by it. I find that in history, when you look at the clash of these civilizations, the Christian and the Islamic, that especially where monastic forms of rigorous spirituality have been embedded for centuries, that is where you have that radical expression yes. of Christ-likeness right. that is able to stand up and withstand and survive yes. as you have the cops, for example, in That's Egypt. Right or parts of Ethiopia as well. Monastic Christian, and I'm not saying, you know, married Catholics are awesome, it's a sacrament, yeah. but the monastic form is also what causes marriages just and families. about Christianity. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That we're no less it. radical than they are, we're just not yes. violent in, the, yeah. in that way. Yes, yeah. but there's a, there's a comfortable suburban Christianity that I think right. is taking hold in many, many areas yes. that's soft and unchallenging. Yeah. And it does, and therefore it's not unattractive. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 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 And that's why we, we're, many, many young people are joining up with this yeah, thing. Well, I mean, when you're so preoccupied with the pleasure principle and yes. enlarging the comfort zone, you're not really uh, aware that the enemy is lurking in yes. those shadows and he's poised And when there's pounce. preaching that there's no enemy really right. and that right. we're all just friends that we maybe not have not re recognized yet through our dialogue, yeah. then... Uh, then it's all kumbaya. Yes. So right. how do we effectively present the gospel to Muslims. I mean, this is this oh, is what a, we, you know, I mean, it's a, a, a big question. That's I mean, a very difficult thing. Yeah. In the first place, it's a death penalty offense. In the Middle in East. In Islam. Right. Yeah. And in many Muslim countries, yes. Okay. You, in, in, in no Muslim country, not a single one in the world is it legal for Christians to proselytize among Muslims. Right. And In the Islamic world? In no Muslim country. Okay. okay. Yeah. No majority Muslim country allows Christians to proselytize freely. 
and in many cases it's a death penalty offense. Also, uh, Islam has kind of an inoculation against Christianity. You know how, uh, I don't know, but it don't inoculations work, they give you a little bit of the disease right. and then you build up an immunity. Mm -hmm, yep. mm -hmm. in, in the Quran, the holy book of Islam, there's a little bit of Christianity. Right. And a whole lot of attacks on Orthodox Christianity. Yeah. So that you build up an inoculation, you build up an immunity to it. And you think that, uh, and so many, many ex-Muslims, when they see that Islam is nonsense, they leave Islam, but they don't uh, think of Christianity. There are Christian converts from Islam, right. Right. but many atheists, because they, they've already been turned off to Christianity by the Quran. Right. Yeah. And so it's very, very hard, but it can be done, because there are also strange things about the Quran, in which Jesus, for example, is born of a virgin, is sinless in Islamic tradition, and uh, is going to return at the end of the world, mm. is called the Word of God, None of these things are attributed to Muhammad. And so if you start to speak about those things and to ask, well, why is it that Jesus, who's supposed to be the, a, a prophet inferior to Muhammad, has all these special things about him that Muhammad doesn't have? Right. And right. this is because the compilers of the Quran appropriated material from Christianity. Sure, because they came after. Obviously. Yeah, they didn't, uh, and, and, and they didn't really think it through. But yeah. these things are, are little hints left of the truth of Christianity within Islam. Right. Well, I think this is why we quite properly speak of Islam as a Christian heresy. It, it yes. grew up from within right. the context of Christianity and then just went completely bonkers. St. John of Damascus, one of the first exactly. Christian critics of Islam yep. in the 8th century, spoke about it in that way. Yeah. Mm. A kind of mm. fanaticized uh, version of, of one particular attribute of the Godhead, His majesty, His power. Yeah, he's absolutely uh, And they will. absolutized right. that. Yes. Right. But at the same time, it flourished in places where heresy had first flourished, like Nestorianism. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so when you have an aberrant view of Christ, you set the stage for this sort of thing. Right. You know, uh, Belloc's book on the great heresies, I think identifies this in a very profound way. And Belloc also recognized in the midst of communism that communism is a passing thing. Right. Islam is a permanent yes. thing. Yeah. And Islam yeah. denies the crucifixion of Christ. That's right. And says that he only appeared to be crucified, Somebody which they got from was. the Gnostic Christians yep. who were in Arabia at the time that Islam was being formulated. They separate the, uh, uh, the, the of course they denounce the idea, I should say, that Jesus is the Son of God and uh, say that it's, it's an insult to his transcendent majesty to say right. that Allah is a son. And that seems to come from the Nestorian denial that Jesus is, that Mary is the mother of God. But it's right. also a revival of a pretty ancient heresy, docetism. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that, that God is just wearing a disguise. He's pretending That's to right. be human. And at the 11th hour, Simon of Cyrene is substituted so that God doesn't have to suffer a degrading execution. And these people went into Arabia, out of the empire. Yes. And so they're in Arabia, and this is the welter in which Islam is being formed. Right. I, I had the uh, pleasure of being on a uh, privilege of being on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land uh, last fall. Wonderful. And um, you know the plight of Christians in the Middle East uh, was was very near and dear to our hearts while we were there, praying for them. What can we in America and the West do for the persecuted Christians in the Middle East? There's a great deal. In the first place, we need to raise awareness about it, mm -hmm. and it needs to be spoken about in the churches and emphasized to the people mm -hmm. that these are our brothers and sisters, and we have a responsibility to them as fellow members of the body of Christ. That's the first thing. Of course, there are organizations that are being formed now to support them in financially and to aid them, but uh, in many cases, even that, it's too late for. And in many, uh, what we need to do, I think, more to the point now is aid in efforts to compel the Obama administration to allow in the Christian refugees. 
whereas he's had a decided preference for the Muslim refugees. Yeah. And there, the, there was a very uh, widely publicized story about some Iraqi Christians in California who were trapped in legal limbo and then ultimately sent back. Well, there's, that's sending them back is sending them to certain death. And so there has to be more openness to the Christian refugees among the U in, in the U.S. government, and we as citizens can pressure our elected officials for that. Yeah, it seems like there's so much that we need to do, but just really being more informed, sharing that news, but also just the solidarity, knowing that oh, they yes. are our brothers yeah. and sisters. Above all, to pray there. for them. That yeah. you know, people think, well, that's way over there, and they're funny kinds of Christians with funny hats or something. Well, so yeah. They have nothing yeah. to do with us. Yeah. And we have to understand that this is all one body of Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're part of the church suffering. Yeah. That's right. That is so true. Stay with us for our final segment of Franciscan University Presents. Irrespective of what they believe God to be, we believe in the Catholic Church that God asks us, the Father asks us to treat every individual who is created in His likeness with love and respect. And we're commanded by the Father to treat them with love even if they don't share that commandment. I'm in the 4 plus 1 program here for counseling. It is very academically challenging, but the classes are a lot of fun. The teachers do love what they teach, and they know their fields very well. If you're interested in mission, that's a big thing here. I did San Diego for two years. That was a youth ministry mission. There are a lot of opportunities here to be actively pro-life, praying outside the abortion clinic. There's a big group that goes to the March of Life here from campus. There's just so much you can do as far as faith goes. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about Islam and the persecution of Christians in the Middle East with Robert Spencer. Um, we're in our final segment, so Regis, could you lead us off? Yeah, I, I can't uh, say anything without first telling you how, how much I admire you uh, and Thank commend you. the work that you do and the courage that you have shown in doing it. I don't know if there's a price uh, on your head, but uh, being anywhere, I, I think, uh, is a, a mark of real gallantry, and uh, I Thank respect you, much. you so much. I, I think if John Kennedy's book were to be updated, Profiles in Courage, there would have to be a chapter uh, <laughs> on, on guys <laughs> like you, and, and the chapter is still being written, so God bless you for that. I mean, everybody should do their bit. I've done mine, and it's pretty modest. Uh, about a year ago, I wrote a piece for Crisis Magazine uh, about telling the truth about Islam. And uh, it struck me that it, it really is uh, anomalous that we are so maddeningly unable to make judgments about people who are determined to kill us. Mm -hmm. And why that is, why that uh, loss of a sense of nerve. Uh, but it's out there, it's widespread, and people in power are certainly infected by it. But not everybody. I mean, I, I think of two wonderful popes, uh, Pope St. John Paul II, who in that splendid book, Crossing the Threshold of Hope, nails it. He's spot on about Islam. It is not a religion of, of redemption. Uh, it represents a reductionism of God to pure power, pure will. There's no provision for Emmanuel. There's no place for love or compassion. Yep. And, and that Islam is fundamentally a religion of violence, and we've got to accept that as dismaying as it may seem. And then Pope Benedict in that, that Regensburg address in which he, he really does tell us that Islam is not interested in logos, truth, intelligibility, but simply will 
power. And, and God could set aside reason and do something absolutely monstrous, and it would be perfectly all right. In fact, it would be a, a scenario for what Islam is doing right now. And we've got to mobilize mm. uh, to put an end to this, or we're going to simply allow others to slit our throats. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Right. Thank you, Regis. Scott. Well, I think when people come out of denial, they're faced with the temptation to give in to panic and rage. And so I think it's appropriate and necessary to enter more deeply into prayer and into the Word of God, and not just you know, our favorite stories and psalms, but Proverbs such as you find in chapter 17, where you know, the, the, the diligent slave will rule the indigent or the undisciplined son. Ours is a religion of divine sonship, divine fatherhood, a divine family, a divine love. And yet it's not a playground, it's a battleground because it's the city of God and the city of man. It's God and Satan. But we know the outcome. And yet at the same time, we know the price that we have to take up our cross every day. Your approach to Islam, you know, is helpful, is necessary. I've I brought you here before for defending the faith. It's glad, I'm glad to have you back. I want to encourage you as well as thank you for the work that you're doing, encourage you to pray and to enter deeply into that kind of interior quiet where you know that the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings who rose from the dead is empowering you and through you many others to the new evangelization. So it's not just the, the denunciation of something that is, that is wrong, it is the proclamation of something that is right because only the pure light can drive out a darkness that is this deep. But I know you as a, as a Catholic Christian, and I know you also as someone who is committed and consecrated. And so I want to thank you. I want to encourage you. Keep writing. Keep breathing. <laughs> and, uh, and, and keep going forth. And, you know, be corrected along the way. You know, I do things and I make mistakes at every, at every step. And so if you do acknowledge that, I don't know of any, so I'm not here to give you a fraternal correction. But at the same time, I want to say, you know, that what you're doing with Jihad Watch, what you're doing in your books, what you're doing in going around and speaking is something that most all of the rest of us are afraid to do. Thank you. Keep it up. God bless you. Well, thank you. I'm, yeah. I'm very grateful for, uh, for both of your uh, words of encouragement, and I, I thank you. I think that uh, it can't be overstated how much this is exactly what you're saying, a struggle between life and death. Mm -hmm. And the Islamic State makes that very clear. They say, we will win because we love death more than you love life. They say this many times. They're very proud of it. And if you think about how they glory in destruction, how they uh, destroyed the Roman antiquities and the Assyrian antiquities, and they have plans to uh, hold mass beheadings in St. Peter's Square and so on, they glory in death and destruction. They're the absolute opposite of what we as Christians should be as lovers of life and lovers of creation and the Creator. And and yet so, lovers of the cross, too. Well, absolutely. But the, 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 the cross is not the love of death. That's right. The cross yeah. is the love of life because yeah. from the, the, by, by death he conquers death yes. and, and, and brings, to, brings us to life in the resurrection. And so it's, it's diametrically opposed. And what we are dealing with in the struggle with the Islamic State is the, 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 the war between life and death. And in that, we can have ultimate confidence because right. we know that death never conquers life mm. and that life will always prevail. Yeah, yeah. And so we, may have, we will certainly have to bear crosses along the way, oh. but after the cross will come the resurrection. Right. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you.
Thank you, Robert. Um, if you've enjoyed today's program, we have a handout from Robert Spencer, Is ISIS Islamic? Uh, it's a great handout. You can get it at faithandreason.com or just by calling us. Um, this program has highlighted for us that evil exists in this world, and that evil um, isn't an individual, it, it, is, it is a movement, and that evil has existed before. And evil tried to put Christ to death on the cross, and it's trying to continue that suffering in our brothers and sisters. So the first thing I think we need to do is recognize that we need to have solidarity uh, with our brothers and sisters uh, in the Middle East, uh, the Christians, uh, those who are minorities in the Middle East who are suffering and in dire need of our prayers and our, our patronage. Um, I had the, the blessing, as I mentioned, to go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And while we were there, we got to meet many of the Christians. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it shocked me that many who go on pilgrimage, even in, in the Holy Land, are not funding Christians. They're going with Jewish guides or they're going with and, and wonderful people, but we need to fund the Christians in the Holy Land. We need to give them uh, the ability to sustain themselves. Uh, in Bethlehem, we used to have 70% Christian. Now it's down to uh, less than 10%. Uh, we need to make sure that Christianity isn't snuffed out. It's that, that olive tree they use as an analogy, that the Christians have been here and will remain here. Uh, some of those olive trees at the Garden of Gethsemane are over 2,000 years old. And there's a beauty to that, that faith. But we also need to recognize that here at our homes, um, as Robert pointed out, that there are too many being drawn into Islam because we are offering a weak form of the gospel. We need to embrace the new evangelization for all that it is and boldly proclaim uh, what it means to be Catholic, to be fully alive with the gospel and spread that. And St. Francis went out to the Muslims. We need to go out and not be daunted. Uh, we need to take that power, that same power that rose Christ from the dead is that same power within us to go out and to open new doors and to reach the gospel to all of those in our circle of influence. Uh, I thank you for watching Franciscan University Presents. This program is part of the mission of Franciscan University. Uh, we believe that we're trying to educate, evangelize, and send forth joyful disciples because our world is in desperate need of those disciples. And I want to invite you to be a partner with us, to join us in our mission, uh, possibly by taking a class here in Steubenville, Ohio, or through our online courses. Or maybe you can join us at one of our dynamic conferences over the summer. Robert Spencer, Scott Regis, so many of the others here. Or join us on a pilgrimage. Again, to the Holy Land would be the pinnacle of all pilgrimages. We offer many pilgrimages throughout the year. Or go to faithandreason.com, a website we set up to equip you for the new evangelization, to feed your head and your heart so that you might be transformed and bring the gospel to our world. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381, or call 740 Two eight three six three five seven. 683 6357